What's that? Don't be blue. I'm not blue. Good. I'm I'm mostly gray at this point. I'm more gray than I am anything else. Green around the edges, maybe. <laughs> what color are you? What color am I? I don't know. I'm asking. It's a test. Oh. It's a husband test. You are Dusty Rose. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> you were very emphatic about that. What a lame color is that? I don't know. <laughs> what color are you? Obviously, I'm scarlet. Oh. <laughs> I'm so dumb for not seeing that. As long as you realize your shortcomings. Oh, I, I absolutely do. <laughs> it's foolish of me. Just ridiculous. I'm All right. Li- I'm liking your new color. You've changed your hair color. Oh, yes. It's It yes. looks very good. I wasn't referring to my hair before. No, just it is my, definitely not scarlet. No, but just my general being, my essence. Your personality is very yellowy. Is it? Oh, yeah. Yellow's okay. It's very yellowy. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> your, C plus. Your aura... <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> I sure as hell don't know. Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duke. I'm the Duchess. And we are in episode 42 where we are going to cover the finale of the lies of Locke Lamora. He does that all the time, you guys. <laughs> Every little thing. Yeah, you think I'm just turning it on for the podcast. That is not nope. what's happening here. <laughs> we are really excited to be going over the end of this book. So our spoiler policy is that Liz has read all the books in this series. I have now read through the end of The Lies of Locke Lamora. So we will spoil The Lies of Locke Lamora, but we will not spoil anything from any of the other books. Correct. And we are going to be covering the rest of the series, though we won't be spending as much time on the next couple of books as we did on this. We'll be covering them each in probably about six or seven episodes. Yeah, I think we decided that this book, given, given the way the plot and everything just unfold so quickly but it doesn't quite have the depth or the mystery of some of the other books that we've read that it's probably better to do this in larger chunks and and get through it a little quicker it's a quick read it'll have to be a quicker podcast so for our next book club we will be covering the second book in the series red seas under red skies or is it red skies over red sea? No, red seas, seas. under red skies. <laughs> under red sky. I don't have it in front of me. We will be reading chapters one and two, as well as the, now they're not called interludes in that book. They're reflections what? or something like reflections, that? Reflections, flashbacks, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, something like that, as well as the, the 
the flashbacks, I'm going to call them flashbacks, that happen between them. So we'll be reading up to, but not including chapter three. Do not read chapter three. If you see where it says chapter three, and you continue reading, you have gone too far. You must turn around. Take your 1978 Pinto ass back to chapter two. <laughs> your best hope it's a cul-de-sac. Okay, so all week I've been starting to try and talk to you about the end of this book, and you keep going, save Save it for the the podcast. podcast. So now I can say to you, what did you think? I liked it. Sorry, hold on. Let me try again. I feel like the lies of Locke Lamora was amazing. (laughs) Much better. Much better. It was okay. It was okay. It was all right. There were some parts that I really enjoyed a lot. It was a a couple of parts I was like, what? I don't quite get that. But it was way more positive than negative. I I thought it was a a really satisfying ending. Probably one of the better endings for uh, book one of a series that I've ever read. I agree. The ending of this book for me really kind of cemented it into my my top five, I think, of, of my current fantasy literature top five. Uh, I loved the ending. The chapter Justice is Red, I, every time I read this book, I read that chapter twice because I get to the end of it and I'm just like, oh, it was just, it was exquisite. I love the pacing of it. I love the tension. I love the character reveals that happen, just the poignancy. Uh, I love Locke's fight. Well, I'm not going to get into it too much, but I really love the end of this book. One of the things I really enjoyed is there weren't a lot of things left hanging out there either. Yes, it's wrapped up very neatly. It's it's really very self-contained for a book one. Right. It leaves it open. You know, if you want to follow Locke and Gene's adventures further, you can't. Did you hear what I called him? I called him Gene. Well, you know, I mean, he's been Gene to you for quite a long time. He has. I'm still, I'm working on it. Locke and John, if you want to follow their adventures further, you can, but there aren't like these overarching mysteries kind of dangling that you're not even sure if the author knows what is going to happen with them, that yeah, kind of thing. I don't get the lost effect. Right. Where the end of the end of season one of Lost, I was like, these assholes have no idea where this is going. <laughs> and I have to say, I called that shit. You did. You did, and we argued about it quite a bunch. <laughs> I was like, no, no, it's going to be like, amazing. Uh-uh, I have no idea what they're doing. They're just throwing shit out there and seeing what sticks. Yep. But this is not a lost podcast. This is a podcast about the lies of Locke Lamora, and we're going to start in chapter 16. Righto. So again, this is my favorite chapter of the book. It's called Justice is Red. Yeah, and it is the only full chapter we cover, but it is one hell of a chapter. It's got like nine parts, and a lot of stuff happens, man. This is a this is a hell of a chapter. Yeah, so in section one, we were left with Locke walking into his hideout with, with Jean, mm-hmm. trying to figure out a plan. He's just gotten away from the spider by punching her in the face and jumping onto an elevator. So he's going back to try and regroup. And who does he see in there but the falconer? Yeah, and this is interesting because we talked a lot in the last episode and in the last chapter about how Locke gets thrown in these situations where 
he doesn't have a plan and he manages to kind of improvise his way out of there. And you would think sometimes, hey, maybe you should sit down and think a little bit more about what the hell you're doing before you walk your ass up into a giant glass tower, right? But it works out. Well, now's a situation where this is, you know, he couldn't have planned for this in a million years, but you get to see how his improvising, his false facing and all of that manages to save his ass, saves his bacon a couple times. So the other thing I keep thinking is that you never, ever want to be locked alone in a room with the Falconer. Hell no. I feel like all the girls back at the Bonds Magi College knew that you didn't want to be alone in a room with a falconer. <laughs> right? They were all talking at freshman orientation, right? He does give off that vibe. Doesn't he? Of like, let's go to the bathroom together. And because uh, that guy might try to corner you on your way there. Yeah, like watch your drinks when you're around the Falconer. Yeah, definitely watch your drinks when you're around the Falconer. He's a creepy dude. He's creepy. And so what I thought was interesting is we see the Falconer's power again. And I just want to kind of, this is the last time we see a Bond's mage acting in the book. Mm -hmm. So we kind of see, so they go in and the Falconer has Jean immobilized. Yep. Okay. Uh, Abelius. That's how I say it, Abelius. Abelius is out of the picture. And... Locke is met with crippling physical pain. Yep. So we see that the Falconer can use your name to completely control your body. He, com- total mind control. Well, that's not a name thing that he's doing to to Locke, and, to Locke at least. Well, I'm just kind of reiterating what we know about the Falconer's okay. power. Mm-hmm. Okay. If he has your name, he can do mind control. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Check. Even if he doesn't, he can still somehow affect your sensory input output to confuse you, cause you to hallucinate. He can cause pain, probably take away pain. We don't know. Yeah. He can also affect physical matter as well. So, we, you know, we've talked a little bit about Bond's mages being, are they too powerful? You think they yeah, are. You're absolutely. nodding. I feel that they're not. I feel that it's an interesting, it's interesting that they're as powerful as they are. But they're limited by their guild and their seemingly self-imposed rules that they only use their power under these contracts. Well, so I mean, that that we know or have exposure to. Well, I, I feel like if you walk up to a bonds mage and you start fucking with him and being like, yeah, but you're not being, you know, he's off duty. He's the off duty cabbie. And you start, you know, stabbing holes in his tires. He's going to get out of the cab and he's going to chase you. Correct. However, what we don't see are Bond's mages becoming kings, trying True. to become oh, the I see emperor. What you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. They're limited by their guild. They're not out there looking to conquer Which the world. Which I don't get. Well, I think that's purposeful. And I think it's meant to raise a greater mystery of why are they like that? You know, if these guys are so all powerful, why aren't they on every throne in every kingdom? Why is the 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 kingdom allowed to just be this sort of disjointed bunch of city states and the bonds magi only get involved when someone pays them to. Well, cause I think they're like, um, they're like war profiteers, you know, and do you really need to have a bonds magi sitting on every throne and ruling every state when you can basically do whatever the hell you want anyway? So now you get to do whatever the hell you want without all the hassle of having to run a vassal kingdom. You can just be like, mm, I'll do whatever I want. 
Probably not. However, I think that the reason the Bonds Magi are so powerful is that we're supposed to wonder that. Yeah. We're also supposed to compare them to the Eldren, who were far more powerful. And it's supposed to make us wonder, okay, if the Bonds Magi are this powerful, the Eldren were that much more powerful. How powerful must they have been? I have a theory And what happened to them? I can't wait to hear it. Anyway, that's my take on why they're so powerful and why it doesn't bother me. However, no matter how powerful the Falconer is, he gets his butt kicked. Yeah. By Jean and Locke. He makes one mistake. He makes one mistake, and that is assuming that he knows Locke's name. Absolutely. So we find out that Locke is not the name that that Locke was born with. No, the other thing I'm thinking this episode is... Doesn't that bird ever get tired of this asshole? It's a sacred bond, Chad. I don't know, man. You wouldn't understand. I'm thinking if I'm that bird, I'm like, holy fuck, man. Just get on with it. Dude, when I capture a squirrel, I fucking kill it. I don't talk it to death. Right? Well, and the falconer does have to gloat. He does. And he does have to inflict the maximum amount of physical and emotional pain on his victims. I think instead of calling himself the falconer, he should call himself the lecturer. Because <laughs> that's a, now is. that is some Bond villain shit. That was, it was so Bond villain. I don't know if it's as Bond villain as let me put you in a cask and send you over a waterfall and just assume you're going to die. It's pretty close, though. <laughs> but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Well, either way, he doesn't get away with it. He is he names Locke's name mm-hmm. and orders him to kill Jean. He's got Jean immobilized, and mm-hmm. he just assumes that even though he doesn't know Locke's true last name, that even part of a name is enough to get him to do what he wants. Yeah. And Locke is able to sort of fake like he's like, oh, I'm being mind controlled. Oh, no. You yeah, know? Yeah. And then just when the falconer really thinks he's going to win, Locke turns around and attacks Vestris the scorpion hawk. Well, he hits the um he hits the falconer in the balls with the blunt end of the axe. Right. Right, and the the hawk reacts, so then he knows Yeah. what yeah, we've he ex- speculated. Yeah, he expected at that point that, you know, that bird would be on him and he'd be dead, you know, but lo and behold, their mind melded. They're all they're all mind melted, which I don't know. I mean, it's not that I don't believe it, but I feel like that is a weakness. Because, you know, what does the falconer do if he's out hunting with Vestris and big ass eagle swoops down and snatches his falcon? I, I don't think any eagle is going to be able to take Vestris. Yeah, they would. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure she's the baddest bofo low down around this town. <laughs> you know? Who's the baddest avian beast there is? She's the baddest avian. No, she's a scorpion hawk. She's bred to be the, the biggest, the baddest. I think she's a regular eagle's not going to take her down. I don't know. One arrow. Well, there you go. And that is another limit. You know, he's got power over this animal, but... She, she could, well, obviously that was his weakness. She gets taken down by a hatchet and game over. Yeah. So in section two, Locke and John take great pleasure in cutting off all of the falconer's fingers. Yes, they do. They spend a lot of time enjoying that. And basically say, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> 
Do we need to explain that so it could be as funny to everyone else? No. It just occurs to me that a lot of our listeners might not have watched the made-for-television version <laughs> of The Big Lebowski on TNT one time. You, you should. If- <laughs> it's funnier when they attempt to take out all the cursing, especially for a movie like The Big Lebowski, which I believe might hold the, the record for the most curse words in a movie. There's a lot of curse words in that movie. There's a movie. lot of F-bombs in and that if movie. And you, if you don't want to just bleep it, there are some very creative phrases that you have to come up with. That's still one of my favorite scenes. But anyway, back to torturing uh, the lecturer. Right. So they decide that they, are, they don't want to kill this Bond's mage because they're trying to find a loophole in the whole kill a bonds mage bring the rest of them down on you like a swarm of bees so they decide instead they're just going to maim him horribly and ship him off as a warning to the other's bonds mages yeah i feel like that's not gonna work i i feel like you're probably right (laughs) i feel like that's not gonna do anything you know i think at the end we you know at the very very end we we get to see a way in which they might be able to keep a little bit of the heat off of them for a little while but yeah, I feel like that's a technicality that, you know, the IRS isn't going to fall for that. We will have to see. Yeah. So in section three, we find out from the Falconer why the Grey King wanted Barsabi dead. And we also find out his plan for Raven's Reach. Correct. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm reading this and even when I'm reading it before and he's pulling the the pyramids up, I'm like, what the fuck is he going to do, right? And it crossed my mind that maybe he had some sort of weird explosives or poison gas. It actually crossed my mind. And I thought, it's very, it's very the Joker-like. Very Bond villain. Yeah, right? It is very Bond villain-like. And so when he starts explaining that he's got this alchemical fuse and this oil, I'm like, really? That's bullshit. And then he says filled with wraith stone and i was like oh shit Mm -hmm. because i'd forgotten about that i'd forgotten about it you know right but it's mentioned throughout the book it's kind of woven in there how horrible this stuff is yeah absolutely and how unsettling and weird it is and how even in this because i remember talk we talked about this in one of the first episodes we did on this book about how for this callous ass society that straps bricks to children's feet before it hangs them that they find wraithstone to be too cruel of a punishment so that's some messed up shit and they set that up well so when so that sort of took me out of the whole feeling like this was the joker you know you know taking trying to take down bruce wayne at an art auction by you know, swooping in with colorful gas and cackling. Mm-hmm. It just felt very Batman-like. But the mm-hmm. Wraithstone part was enough to kind of bring me back into it and go, oh, damn. So, yeah, that was that was interesting. It was. And now we get to see Locke in a very interesting and telling dilemma. So... Yeah, because I'm thinking when when he tells him this is going on, and Locke is like, I'm going to run back there. I'm thinking this is the perfect revenge for the Falconer. Exactly. Because if he runs his ass back up to Raven's Reach and gets his ass arrested and there's nothing there, he, you know, like that would be a hell of a coup. 
for the falconer. Of course, we we already knew about the sculpture, so and we, you know, we had enough evidence to to feel like it was legit, but it was still enough of a risk. Well, in either way, the falconer gets a little bit of revenge, and he expresses some satisfaction that basically Locke has to choose between his revenge on Kappa Bar- on Kappa Raza mm-hmm. and saving the peers of Kamor because the falconer makes sure he asks him. Getting revenge on Caparaza, that's what you want, right? That's what you want more than anything. Mm-hmm. And Locke says, yes. And he says, well, tough tater tots, motherfucker. Because <laughs> now you have to choose. That's a peculiar twist of phrase right there. <laughs> Thanks. You chose to, to, to let the motherfucker fly, but to use the tater tots substitution for tough titties. Well, tater tots are good. I mean... <laughs> I'm just saying I appreciate it. <laughs> it was an interesting, interesting choice of phrase. So anyway, it's tough tater tots for Locke, but he's got an interesting moral dilemma. And I think we kind of see, again, this theme that's been going throughout the whole book. What makes a moral person? What makes yeah. a good person? Mm-hmm. And we've had these thieves displaying more morality than priests and the upright people of Camor, and now we see it again and we see Locke willing to sacrifice not only probably his freedom possibly his life but his the thing he wants more than anything revenge for his friends in yeah. order to save his enemies and people who hate him and are probably going to lock him up and yeah. beat the crap out of him yeah yeah so we with just a nice I like the way that theme comes back around well and it, it goes again to some of the things that we talked about early in the book where we felt like fairly early on, from what we've seen anyway, these were like the only really ethical characters we found, you know? And how when a society is that corrupt, then being, you know, the outsider who pokes holes in the fabric of the flawed culture is really kind of the only right thing to do. And we see that sort of carry through into this sort of ethical dilemma that he's faced with, but it's really not a dilemma for Locke at all. He doesn't really agonize over it. He's got to to do the right thing. He does, and this theme is addressed again. It's kind of continued into the next section, but not until Locke cuts the falconer's tongue out. So... Well, I mean... After he maybe didn't promise, but strongly indicated that he wouldn't. Technically, Jean cut his tongue out. Technically. You're right. (laughs) You're right. But as Locke is running back to the tower, he gets scooped up by Conte. Yeah. Conte is pissed. Conte's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dick. In this section. But we get another uh, discussion about who's moral, who's not, who's a good person, and who's not. And it's not quite set out in quite so black or white of a manner. And Conte tells Locke, basically... You think you're doing the right thing here? You think you're you're doing any that's something good by stealing from these people? And he tells him about his relationship with the Salvara family, the Salvara family, and Lorenzo's father, who he served with, and mm-hmm. how he he served with him, and he was in this horrible battle, and all of the other peers of Kumor ran mm-hmm. and saved their own skins, and Lorenzo's father came in and was the only one who stayed and saved his life. And now Conte has served the family. And he said, you know, Lorenzo might not have done something quite like that, but he did charge into that alley with nothing but a belt knife to try and save you from 
two armed thugs who, True. even though Locke wasn't in any kind of real danger, he still did that. He's still that Absolutely. kind of person. Yeah. So, you know, we've so far seen Lorenzo as mostly kind of a greedy, upper class, you know. Yeah, I don't even take him as greedy. Maybe a little. You know, you're not, he's not like a shining paragon of self-sacrifice and virtue. But we, we, he definitely is someone who did charge in and try to save Locke. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think what Locke says back to him is very interesting and really kind of one of the main messages of this book. He says, I do what I do. Is Lorenzo a saint of Paralandro? He's a peer of Camor. He profits from the secret peace. His great-great-grandfather probably slit someone's throat to claim a peerage, and Lorenzo benefits from that every day. People make tea from ashes and piss in the cauldron while Lorenzo and Sophia have you to peel their grapes and wipe their chins for them. So I think that's an important theme that gets addressed here is, is it, can you claim a moral high ground when you've benefited from previous generations, immoral acts? No, and I think it speaks very much to Scott Lynch. Right. You know, and what he, and what he's trying to say here. And Conte is just like, I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to kick you right in the face. Right in the face. <laughs> yeah, Conte's really kind of a dick in this section. I'm like... He's kind of a dick throughout the whole book. True, yeah. But would you just shut the fuck up? Like, <laughs> But either way, he gets Locke up to Raven's Reach. Yeah, and, th- and this is the part where I was like, okay. I, I, like, the conversations with Reynard, the conversations with uh, Donia Vicenza, when... She comes out of her spell and screams, and I'm just like, I, I found a lot of that part to be very tedious and not very satisfying. It wasn't like, don't get me wrong, like it wasn't like terrible, but it was just this to me was kind of the low light of this chapter. I guess I feel like if he had just walked right in and they'd been like, okay, here's the. Oh, Here's oh. the old lady you just punched in the face like an hour ago. Oh, no, no, Let no. me walk you right back into her. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it would have been, that would have felt too easy for me. Uh, no, agreed. Ag- agreed. And I think he was fairly clever. And where it kind of picked up for me was when he was trying to w- talk his way out of there. Because even after, so they go through this whole thing. Locke spends the whole time trying to convince them, get them to shut the hell up. And listen to him that there is, they're essentially they're bombs, that the statues are bombs. And, you know, there's all this, well, why should we trust you? And blah, blah, blah. That's ridiculous. And no, the spider is under a spell. And ah, uh, she screams, you know, all this crap, right? But, and then they get rid of the, of the statues and dispose of them. Okay. And then after that, they're like, well, thank you for saving us. That'll give you some leniency, but we're still going to lock your ass up and throw you away. And then I feel like he very cleverly walks his way out of there. That part I kind of enjoyed. So the tail end of it I kind of enjoyed. But just all the conversation and all that sort of leading up to it, it wasn't my favorite. So It wasn't bad. It just I wasn't really favorite. enjoyed Vorchenza punching him in the mouth. Okay. Fair <laughs> point. And I also really enjoyed Locke telling the story and talking about how he cut the the Bonds Mage's fingers yeah, off yes. to make him talk, and they're they all stare they're at all him. horrified. And he goes, "I called him an asshole too." He didn't like that. He didn't like it. <laughs> okay, fair point. I actually wrote I wrote that down. 
<laughs> said, how could, you know, question about about that. He said, because I got the bonds mage and tied him to the floor and cut off all his fingers. <laughs> Everybody stared at him. I called him an asshole, too. He didn't like it. It was, it was the one quote I wrote down in this whole section. So I guess I liked it more than I'm leading up to. But th- I guess in particular, the part about the spider kind of coming out of the spell, that w- that just seemed kind of hokey to me. Well, it's interesting. Again, we've been talking about what the Bonds Mages can do and it seems as though the the brain fog they can put on someone or mm-hmm. altering memories is not permanent. So that's just interesting to note. Or it seems like Locke is able to present kind of a, re- a reality to her that sort of snaps her out of it. Like it's not a time thing. It's that he's able to go, no, this is what really happened. Right, not a time thing, but it takes, they last until you put focused attention on them or think about them too much. Yeah, yeah. It's refrigerator magic. Refrigerator magic. It's like refrigerator logic. You walk away. Yeah. You know, it's after the show. You go into the refrigerator to get a snack and you're like, hey, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. I, I've never heard that term before. That's. You never heard of that? Or shower no. logic? I've heard no. that same thing. You know, you watch a show. It's amazing. You go to bed. You know, you get in the shower the next morning. You're like, Hey, that doesn't make any sense. Suddenly it starts to fall apart. If they had the birds all along, why didn't they just drop the ring in the mountain? Because they had to be sneaky, okay? They had to sneak. You can't just fly giant eagles over millions of orcs. They'd have been shot down. They had giant crossbows. They had enough orcs to like storm major cities. They could have taken down a couple of eagles. Don't start with me. <laughs> I, I will not. <laughs> I will not start with you. I was just using that as an example. Oh, okay. All right. Not saying I disagree. <laughs> okay. Whew. Yeah, the it's claws okay, came out. <laughs> Mommy and daddy love each other very much. <laughs> you ball up your fist. <laughs> Sorry. I get tired of that particular nitpick. No problem. Anyway. So I also really enjoyed how Locke, and and we find out at the end of the book how clever this is. As he's leaving, Locke doesn't just go, okay, thanks, guys. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you're letting me go. See you later. He's like, well, don't you want to know where your money is? Well, that's how he gets out. Right. Like, he wasn't getting out. That's right. That's right. But... He doesn't tell them where the money actually is. No. He He tells them that the money, I mean, just like the way it must have come to him so quickly, he tells them that their money is on underneath a pile of shit on a shit barge. And he then, as he's leaving, pretends to realize something. Yeah. The plague ship. The plague ship must have been Caparaza's backup plan and he's going to release a plague on the city and they're like oh my gosh he's like you've got to sink it of course we know that the money is actually on the plague plague ship ship, yeah yeah i like that part a lot is because again one of the things that's great about this chapter is how many of these things tie back to stuff from the beginning of the book yes you know and so the plague ship becomes a death offering yes you know, as high priest of the 13th, as you would do, you know. And so by 
having that fortune, you know, gets sunk to the bottom of, of the bay, he's giving a death offering for Calogado and Bug. So, yeah, so I enjoy that quite a bit. And so much of the, this, cha- this chapter, despite my complaints about the spell on Vorkenza, this chapter is so well done and ties up so many things and calls back to so much in the beginning. It's really, it's really quite brilliant. It's quite well done. So in section seven, basically it's short, they sink the plague ship. Yeah. <laughs> and some guys being like, wow, that ship's really sunk. Yes, sorry. Yeah, it's got no... It's super sunk yeah. right to the bottom. <laughs> really did not have any chance. <laughs> but in section eight, Caparaza gets a note from the gentleman bastards. Yes. Now, again, despite one tiny nitpick, the fight with the Grey King is, I love it. It was fantastic. Love it. Again, I said last time, the fights are not my favorite part of fantasy literature. You know, I think a lot of times it gets way overdone and way overplayed and people rely way too much on swords and swashbuckling. Same, yeah. You know, but... But every once in a while, they're really well done. And this this one was phenomenal. I absolutely love it, too. So we see Locke. Well, first, I love that the Grey King gets in a sack with the body of Vestris, the scorpion hawk in it. Yeah. And just a note that says, we're coming. Yeah. Right as his ship gets sunk. Yep. And he so, gets, so, yeah, he sees the flames of the ship. And he's out there and he says he wanted to cry, but he wouldn't. You know, and then we get we get more exposition to talk about what happened with uh, his sisters and his family and how they were killed. And that's very much a song of ice and fire sort of, you know, scene with, you know, people running in there and stabbing babies and stuff like pretty awful, like pretty horrific. The other thing that was shocking to me is that the gray King is only 35 years old. Yeah. You know, and he's described earlier in a way that led me to believe that he was older than that. Not like, not like old. Right. But older than 35. So I was surprised that he's only 35. I always pictured him as older. Yeah, okay. So and I I'm, just ignored Scott Lynch. <laughs> well, I think whenever they finally, you know, make a movie, he'll be cast as somebody older. Well, you know, the, the young 20-somethings will be played by... Older people, probably. Oh, absolutely, yeah, of course. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, yeah. I have quite the list. All right, interesting, interesting. Anyway, so the Gray King gets sent. I just love this section eight where he gets sent. His ship goes up. He gets sent the body. He tells his people to get out, and he sits on his throne and yeah. waits. Just it's some beautiful language in there. He pulls a. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. He does. Yeah, but th- but this was what didn't make sense to me. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. So, so I don't, I don't want to come across as negative, but when they say we're coming and you have all the right people with you and your way out of town just got blown to smithereens, why would you send away all your muscle? Like he sent away all of his protection. If he had just kept the people there, then Locke and Jean or whoever wouldn't have been able to get him. He could again body in a cask. I'm assuming he's dead. So definitely more than a hint of Bond villain in this guy. I would say for me, I would think 
the grief over his sisters being killed. And I think we get to see that flashback because we get to see the scene of his twin sisters and they're younger than him and they're relying on him. So the idea that, okay, I sent this bonds mage, a bonds mage who is supposed to be all powerful, completely all powerful. They took care of him, obviously. Jean killed his sisters personally. I can, it doesn't seem out of character for me that he would want to personally take care of them and, and have enough confidence that he would be able to do that. Well, I feel like in my opinion, he, you know, knowing that he just has bombs that are on the way to blow up or I forget what the timeline was. You know, he may have been listening for the screams from, from the tower and known that that plot didn't go off. But either way, he probably figures he's at this point made an enemy of all the peers of Kamor. And so he he knows he's going to get people coming after him for that. And his way out of town just got lost. I sort of feel like the only thing that makes sense for me in this situation is if he just had a death wish. Well, and I, I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, that is the only part of it that makes sense to me. And his his exact words to his people are, get out and stay away. Leave the doors open. No guards. Get out while I'll still give you the chance. So, yeah, it sounds like, to me, he either wants to kill Locke and Jean himself or just be killed. Yeah, or both. <laughs> or both. Yeah. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. And when Locke shows up by himself, I think it starts to turn around and he thinks, well, if, if Jean was there and he asks, where's Jean? Locke says, oh, he's coming. Even though as far as Locke knows, he's not. Yeah. And it's interesting to see first the exchange of the conversation they have where Locke asks him, why? Why did you have to kill yeah. my friends? I would have given you that money. And the Grey King can't even comprehend that. No. So it's an interesting contrast between these two characters. You know, he says, you would never have given it to me. And I think his exact words are, what thief wouldn't fight to protect what he has? And Locke says, a thief who has something more important. So. Well, and it's interesting because I feel like both of them are right in that scenario. Because I feel like Locke is 100% right in that it was the thieving, not the not the actual goods that he cared about. It was the gentleman bastards that he cared about. That's why that money was sitting in a vault. So I, I think he's right. But I also feel like the great king is right. If this guy rolls up into town and is like, I need all this money because this is what I'm going to do, Locke, Locke wouldn't have just given him that money. I don't think that's accurate at all. He might have if the great king had done something like kidnap the others. However, again... Yeah, probably. I, I would agree with that. Again, Locke had several chances for them to get out of town before all that went down. Mm-hmm. Not that the Great King would have let them, but every time Locke felt like he had a handle on it. Yeah. We've got this. This is what we're trained for. You're probably right. But it's an interesting statement, again, on what's important to Locke yeah. and the idea of money being the not important part of what he does. And then the fight. And... All of Locke's, with all of his bluster and and faking, he can't fake being a good fighter. No. <laughs> and and that part was pretty funny. You know, and, and the Great King says, we finally come to something you can't fake your way through. Yep. And Locke said to him, ah, but I know something you don't know. 
I, I am I am not, not left handed. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get one of the best callbacks of of the whole book. Oh yeah. So uh, the lock is kind of at the end of his rope. The Grey King realizes, okay, this guy actually is not a good swordsman and I'm going to kill him and kind of toy with him. So he starts like kind of poking, poking holes, holes in, in him, him. Quite literally. Here and there. And Locke uh, kind of gets a hold of him and he and he pulls the, I don't have to kill you. I just have to keep you here until Jean gets back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a callback to his, their fight with the half crowns when they were children. Only he doesn't know that Jean is coming, but he uses that fear of Jean. Yeah. Throws a stone so that the Grey King hears something and says, Jean, come save me. Yeah. And as the Grey King is distracted, Locke is able to plug him. Yep. So yeah, it's just wonderful, that. wonderful, like cyclical storytelling there, how it comes back around. Yeah. And this is really just phenomenal writing from a, particularly from a plot point and just a structure standpoint, just top notch. And sometimes you see authors who are really good at like writing the fighting scenes, doing the plot stuff but their characters don't have a lot of depth to them in their world building, or maybe the world building. But Scott Lynch really kind of has, he's firing on all cylinders here. You know, like, the characters are phenomenal. You care about them. No, I don't think it's as well-written as the King Killer Chronicles. I don't think it's as well-written as A Song of Ice and Fire. But in a lot of ways, there are aspects to Scott Lynch's writing, particularly in this book, I don't know, I can't speak to the other books yet, obviously, that are better than some of the aspects of George George R. R. Martin or Patrick Rothfuss writing. What he does well, he does really well. I I completely agree. You know, Scott Lynch's writing, I I love his dialogue. Yeah. I love the humor of his characters. And the pacing of the plot is is just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you are able to read these books and just kind of tear through them. I mean, I I don't know how long it take, took me to read this book the first time, but I guarantee you that it was one of those spans of a couple of days where you were like, okay, I'm just not going to talk to her because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just could not put it down. And I just really enjoy how neatly everything ties up. Um, and how all the, the, the interludes that just kind of seem like their background really all kind of end up going somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even down to Jean and Locke's first meeting where they don't really get along, like all those little things just kind of come to bear, all those little character moments. Right. And the, you know, but the relationships, even though it's a, I would say a plot driven story, the relationships are real and the relationship between Locke and Jean as it grows throughout the book is really poignant and moving. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end where when Jean finds him, it's really a very touching scene. Yeah, it's great. It it's phenomenal. I I thought it was quite good. And then we get this really brief like couple of paragraph interlude called A Minor Prophecy. And it's I, for me it's very funny. I, you know, yeah. you had this kind of like epic battle, this very like touching reunion with John and you don't know if Locke's going to live and then we get this little flashback to Father Chains talking to young Locke and saying, "One day, and I hope I'm here to see it, you're going to screw up so spectacularly that I can't remember what he says exactly, but the something. gods themselves will come down and laugh at you." Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And Locke just says, "That'll never happen." 
And that's it. That's the whole that's interlude. That's the whole interlude. It's like four <laughs> paragraphs. Well, to me, I feel like that's confirmation of what we talked about last week in episode 41 when Locke was escaping out of the window from from Raven's Reach and he just happens to crawl out the window where the elevator's coming past, you know? It's, to me, it's just confirmation that I think the gods in this are actively involved. I would agree. And when you, especially when you look at Raynar's reaction to finding out that that's what Locke actually did. Yeah. And so we can't quite picture, this is something that I feel like in a film you'd be able to translate better. Yeah. We can't picture how far of a jump it was or how wide the ledge was or how really kind of perilous it was. But hearing the reaction of Vorchenza and the other people that, that yeah. he had actually did this, they were like, oh my gosh. Like, it ne- first of all, never would have occurred to her that he would have done it. That anybody and could Anybody do would it. have done it. Yeah. So it's definitely, you get the impression that it was a almost physically impossible feat. You know, even these, these top-notch security people left the window unguarded because it wouldn't have occurred to him that he would yeah. be able to do this. Well, and I think it speaks again. We just we just uh, gave Scott Lynch a giant hand job, but <laughs> but I think it's you know now we're You're welcome, Scott. <laughs> now we're going to give him a happy ending here. I think um, it speaks to the skill of his writing that you can have this character who time after time after time escapes impossible situations and you, you don't feel like it's unearned like you feel well it is unearned but but what i mean is that you're not like oh great it's satisfying because you do feel like this is a character who just has some sort of blessing of the gods upon him that when shit gets really impossible he's going to somehow through random ass luck and just guile he's going to find a way to get out of it he doesn't get out of it unscathed but he gets out of it through these in crazy impossible type of situations and at no point has scott lynch ever in any piece of exposition ever stated that and yet we both get the same definitive impression from the writing i think that's really quality i think it is too and i think you get little hints of it and we've mentioned some of these throughout the book when the characters pray and you get a sense of the characterization of the deities and their relationship with the characters themselves yeah and i think that those things are like little seeds that stick with you yeah so that when Locke does make an impossible leap onto a moving elevator from a six inch ledge yeah you're like okay you know the crooked warden obviously Smiled upon him. Smiled upon him. Well, and right before he kills the Bonds Mage. So, like, he is... I mean, the Bonds Mage has him totally where... I'm sorry, not the Bonds Mage. um, Caparaza has him absolutely 100% where he wants him. I mean, Locke is in a horrible situation. But Locke prays to Azaguia and says, "Grant, just grant me this, please. And he just lunges for Caparaza, and not only does he manage to catch him, he manages to disarm him. Two weapons. 
I mean, in the most horrific possible way, and he's his left arm's going to be jacked up for the rest of his life. But he manages to disarm him, and if he didn't manage to disarm both of those weapons, he would have died. You know, so again, I think in these little subtle ways with the placement, I think we're we're led to believe that, but never at any point does it ever say it. Yeah, I it's good storytelling. Yeah, I think so. And I like, you know, I'm not usually a big fan of a like a long denouement at the end of a book, but I really liked this one. And it wasn't like long. It wasn't long. Yeah, yeah. But I liked all of the little loose ends that tied up. Um, it was no cleansing of the Shire. It was no cleansing of the Shire. Exactly. Look, it felt you're going to have to agree with me that that book was shite. That that book was shite? Lord of the Rings. I'm fucking with you. <laughs> <laughs> this might have been the most tense moment of our marriage. I- fine <laughs> i'm sorry i doubted you <laughs> for a second i really couldn't tell if you were serious <laughs> oh my god all right yeah. <laughs> we were gonna have i was like i i, I need time to prepare this <laughs> the, po- the dissertation over. i'm going to give me a minute <laughs> it's to talk about all the reasons that you're wrong <laughs> and i need time to prepare okay no, it's no cleansing of the Shire. No. Which I, I agree was the crappiest part of that book. It was the okay. crap. You know what? I don't, I'm not as down on it as a lot of other people are. I, I think I would probably agree. It probably is the weakest part of the book, but that's okay. Right. However, this epilogue, False Light, the denouement, the tying up of all of the things was very satisfying for me. In part one, we see the falconer gets sent back in a box. Yeah. For uh-huh. delivery to the a Duke cart Spider. Full of mutilated bonds, mage. <laughs> right. There you go. Vergenza, enjoy. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so I felt like the note was important. You know, the note says, you know, to Carthane, fuck you, sign the spider. So, and I just, you know, I think that was a very clever move on Jean's part to put that note in there and throw you know, cast the attention to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll save their ass. You know, I do think eventually, I don't think they're going to get away with it scot-free. I think it'll come around, but I think that will give them enough sort of air coverage for long enough for them to get their asses the hell out of Dodge. Right. And so in section two, this is one of my favorites, is when Donna Vorchenza kind of realizes that, that, yeah, the shit barge was the shit barge was, was just not, a shit show. Was just a shit barge, and she made her men sometimes, stand there and dig through it. Sometimes a shit barge is just a barge filled with shit. <laughs> yep. Sometimes <laughs> there is no gold under the shit barge. No, it's just crap. Nope. So they're standing there, and she realizes that she gets made. And she also realizes that Locke had her sink the real ship full of money as a death offering. Mm-hmm. And she kind of laughs and she's like, well, okay. Oh. And we also see the Salvaras get made her heirs. Yep. She decides that they are, she's ready to retire as the spider. It's been mentioned in the book, and I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, that uh, Donna Vercenza is 
old and she's the last of her line. So she just was going to have some random peer some random come in cousin. and yeah. Yeah, take over her her castle and all her money and mm-hmm. and her title. And she is, instead tells the Salvaras that she's going to name them her heirs and make them the spider after her. So that's kind of a neat and satisfying ending because by the end of the book, you kind of like them. Uh, yeah, I, I like the Salvaras. You know, they're smart, they're resourceful, they're not completely amoral as far as the yeah. nobility goes. So you're, that's kind of satisfying. Yeah, you feel like they're, they're, yeah, agreed. You feel like they're capable. You have to remember the first time you met a Salvara, they were charging into an alley right. to save some random stranger. You right. know, uh, they're not idiots. They make Is, booze oranges. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have a boat that has an orchard on it. Uh, right. That's some Bond villain shit right there. It is. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> so yeah, no, I agree. I like that as well. And then after that, we end up with uh, Lakshan and Abelius on the ship heading to either Talisham or Talvarar. I'm not quite sure which. And once again, they try to have a little a little moment, you know, where Jean's like, I'm sorry, I couldn't protect you. And Jean's like, shut up, you big oaf. And then Locke tells Jean his real name. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. It's like finding out the doctor's name. So what is Locke's name? I don't know. What do you think it is? You liar. I, I, I don't think I do. No, of course, I'm not going to reveal that right this early on. So I have a prediction for what I... I predictions. I have a prediction for what I yes. think his name is. do it. Well, do you have anything else you no, want to I talk don't. about? No, I don't. I want your predictions. I have four predictions. Okay. So prediction number one is Sabatha shows up in the next book. Okay. God, I hope I'm right about it. Prediction number two is the Guild of the Bonds Magi are not going to look the other way because Locke and Jean technically didn't kill the Falconer. Okay. I do think that it's... I think that'll come back on them. I think it'll be a little while. I think they did a good job of of distracting and misdirecting. So I think it'll be a while, but I do think that's going to come back on them. My next prediction, the 13 gods are the Eldrin themselves. Oh! <gasps> That is such a good prediction. Wow. I totally forgive you for joking about Lord of the Rings not being a good book. <laughs> that is such a good prediction. I love it. I think the Eldrin are the actual 13 gods. I love it. Wow. You're smart. It's either that or the Eldrin got powerful enough that the 13 gods came down and killed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also to, a good prediction. To me, yeah. it's one of those two. Mm-hmm. Locke's name is Kala Justica. Okay, where does that come from? So in this chapter, there were a couple of times that Locke said, Ila Justica ve Kala. I don't know how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And um, justice is red. Right. That he said over and over again. And each time they were like, eh, not really all that. Mm-hmm. They, super appropriate. And it just kind of came up a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
that's just my stab in the dark that his name is Kala Justica. Hmm. Red Justice, five syllables. Hmm. I like it. He's the Red Justice. Well, think this is kind of where, I mean, it's completely swinging for the fences, haymaker sort of prediction, right? But think about what you see out of Locke. We talk about this book, and we talk about the people, the peers, and we talk about the Palace of Patience. And is there any part of any of this that shows any degree of actual justice? Uh, no. The only person who has any sense of justice are the gentleman bastards, led by Locke, trying to, because even Chains, who had a good sense and wanted to accomplish something and wanted to, you know, throw a monkey wrench into the secret piece, but didn't, you know, but really didn't go nearly as far as Locke did. So Locke is the only sort of instrument of justice in the entire novel. I like it. So. I like it. If I had to take a guess, I'd say chances are good that's not his name. <laughs> but that's my that's my prediction. So we do have a few listener interactions. So Daryl Mansell says, what do you think Ostershall and Brandy taste like? And I said, regret. No, it's not regret. It's the only brandy that doesn't give you a hangover. Ugh. I drank it, it would be a regret. Uh, yes, I, uh, me as well. <laughs> so, me and Brandy do not mix. No, uh, <laughs> she was a fine girl. What a good wife she would be, but she's got to stay in the bottle. So, Theo said <laughs> he thinks overall it was a satisfying ending, even if he felt like it was a little too rushed or maybe a bit too pat. Mm hmm. He also felt it was interesting that the exact question that he raised weeks ago about the effect of the secret piece on merchants mm. was something that came back. He did mm -hmm. raise that point, which is not something I yeah. was really thinking about. Yeah. And then he said, that leaves me with two questions. Can we already guess the five syllables of his real name? I mean, I don't think we, I don't think we well, have. Well, you just kind of guessed. I mean, I guessed. Mm -hmm. I think that's about all we can do is take wild ass guesses. I don't right. think there's enough evidence to tell us one way or the other. Right. And also, what do the Bonds Magi do when they don't get paid and the person who was supposed to pay them is dead? Mm. I don't know. Don't know. Maybe we'll find out. So, yeah, his speculation is, are they going to hold the city liable? I think in this case, they might hold the city liable. Not for their money, but because they returned their Bonds Magi crippled in a cart. Or can they just magic that money up out of the water? Well, you know, the other thing that crossed my mind is when this world moves forward technologically and somebody invents that first weird-ass uh, scuba suit where they put a giant tub on top of somebody's mm -hmm. head filled with air and send them down, mm -hmm. that's going to be a rich motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Jim Albright, who is at Strider TB, says, Please do Red Sea under Red Skies next. Love you too. Started listening after I read King Killer and Lies of Lachlan. And I read... Lies of Lock Lamore because of you. I couldn't read along, though. I burned through all three of the books in a month. So thank you, Jim. We understand. I was not given that option, <laughs> but it's okay. 
Angela Empress Palpatine, who is at bloodlust underscore four, says, I'm just starting the lives of Locke Lamora. I'll be checking out your podcast as I go along. So welcome. 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 All right. So are you ready for fantasy casting? Yes. Gotcha. So ready. All right. Let's start with the bit players and kind of work our way to the main ones. That's good. Okay, so do you have anyone for uh, Stephen Reynard? No. Sorry. I'm lame. <laughs> well, we didn't compare notes, so I didn't right. tell you who to who to get ready for. I don't think you need to. I, 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 well, I'm not invested enough in Reynard that he's just sort of a blob in my mind. I like uh, Eugene Simon. He's the guy who played Lancel Lannister. Oh, yeah. I can see that. I just kind of picture him as tall and blonde and good looking. and Yeah very frat boy like yeah yeah you know? i like that All right, who do you have for the spider i mean maggie smith we kind of talked about that a little bit i know she's kind of like that's kind of a cliche old lady casting but i feel like maggie smith's a little too robust no maggie smith is tiny hmm, okay maybe i'm getting her confused with some other old white woman you might <laughs> They all look alike to me. She was a uh, McGonagall in Harry Potter. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, that would be a good one. Mm-hmm. That would be a good one. I have uh, Alta Gracia Guzman, who is um was in I Heart Huckabees. An okay, older lady, very frail and bent looking. Okay, older woman. Who do you have for Abelius? Anybody? No, I'm lame. Oh, you know. I think I'd have pictured Abelius as Joel Gray. Who's Joel Gray? I should know who that is. He was, oh gosh, I'm, I'm I hope I don't say this wrong because I always get him. He was in an, it's not going to help you. He was in an episode of Buffy. Oh. <laughs> well, I watched most of Buffy. Um, he was in Towards the End. I'm looking up his movies right now. I don't know. He's a stage actor mostly. He did Wicked. Um, he was the last season of Buffy. He was in one episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, small right. part. So I don't know if you'd. I have Abelius as F. Murray Abraham. That's I like. Yes, I can totally see that. Yeah, I had him at um at first. I had him as Pete Postlewaite. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. But then I realized that that dude died like six mm. years ago. He was the guy who played um. I forget the guy. He was in The Usual Suspects mm-hmm. as the guy who kept coming as the representative of Kobayashi. Oh, yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, he passed away. Who do Jennifer you... Gray is Joel Gray's daughter. Oh, no shit. I did not know that. Sorry, go ahead. Cool. Who do you have for The Falconer? For The Falconer, I have Christoph Waltz. Ooh, good one. Do you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He played the main Nazi in Inglorious Bastards. Very good. I like that. Thank you. I chose Harry Lloyd. Okay. Who yeah. I like. He's my if there's go somebody to bad guy. He's my go to if you really want to hate somebody who's kind yeah. of smarmy. Yeah. It's Harry Lloyd. But I like Harry Lloyd. I think he could pull off a Falconer. Mm-hmm. You know. And Ambrose. Yeah. <laughs> uh all right. What about the Grey King? The Grey King, I had Ray Fiennes. Good one. Good one. Good one. I have Vincent Cassell. 
He was in Black Swan. He played the bad guy in the last Jason Bourne movie. And he was also in Eastern Pro. If you saw him, you would recognize okay. him. Okay. He would definitely. He's a French actor. Okay. Very French looking. All right. All right. What about the Don and Dona Silvara? Oh, I'm excited about this one. Okay, go ahead. Don Silvara, Tom Hardy. Dona Silvara, Charlize Theron. Okay. Good. Right? Like Mad Max Fury Road, but in a Venice-inspired fantasy setting. I'm not as sure how much I like Tom Hardy in that role. I think I think he could pull it off. He does polished. He can do a polished, uh, noble sort of guy, but that you still take seriously. Yeah. Well, mine is ludicrous, but I, but I stand by it because I think, I think this guy can pull it off. So my casting for the Donia is Catherine Winnick. She plays the lead female role in Vikings. Oh, okay. Just yes. A blonde, yeah, I can picture her. Yeah. Know. Uh, but cause I feel like that, that character has to come off as, um, as being very intelligent. So, and I feel like that Catherine Winnick looks very intelligent, but is blonde. Don Salvara, I have a Sasha Baron Cohen. Interesting. I feel like he could pull it off. Okay. That's the look I picture mm-hmm. for Don Salvara. And I mean, I know that Sasha Baron Cohen has obviously just played absolutely ludicrous characters, mm-hmm. but I feel he, he could pull that character off. I don't feel like that's probably of all the roles we've talked about, mm-hmm. other than maybe like Reynard. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the one that probably requires the least amount of acting. Mm. I feel like the Don doesn't really have to put on a lot of no good acting. What about the Barangia sisters? You know, I, again... I, I mean, it's weird, but I, but I picture Zendaya (laughs) and I know that like totally wouldn't. Why? I don't know because she's a Disney pop star (laughs) fighting sharks. But I, I mean, she did a really physical role in the greatest showman. I think she's very athletic. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know. That's who I picture. I worry that mine is doesn't have enough of a physical presence, but I like it because I chose two actual sisters. Oh, okay. Who are twins and they work very well with Vincent Cassell as mm-hmm. the Grey King. Mm-hmm. So I tried to picture the three of them mm-hmm. as looking very similar, but yeah. you know, so they're from the same family. Ava Green and Joy Green, her twin sister. I did not know Ava Green was a twin. I didn't either until I started looking around. Hmm. Her sister, by the way, is not an actress. Right. But I just, I don't care. You I like just it. make her be one. Yeah, do it. <laughs> so what about uh, Nazca? Oh, Nazca was one of my first, like, uh, actress popped into my head the first time I, one of the first times I read this. Mm-hmm. Elodie Young, which you probably wouldn't know, she was, she played Electra on Daredevil. Yeah, I definitely can't picture it. I watched a couple of episodes of Daredevil, but not enough to to be able to picture who the actress was. Well, no, she was in season two of Daredevil. Oh, well, so I, I don't def- think you, I you definitely wouldn't don't. know her. But yeah, that's who I pictured. I picture Alexandra Daddario. She was the, I think, the lead actress in the Percy Jackson okay. movies and in San Andreas. Okay. Capo Barsavi. Ian McShane. 
Anne McShane. Shut up, really? Yes. Yeah. High five. High five. Nice. Good job. Look at that. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Thief maker. David Bradley. Walter Frey. Oh. Good one. Thanks. Good one. I, I definitely didn't go that old, but I like but I like that. I went also with a Game of Thrones actor. I do not know how to pronounce this, so I'm gonna try my best. Mm-hmm. Pilu Earsburk. Okay. The guy who played Euron Greyjoy. Okay. Chains. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh dead, but this is fantasy casting. S- I like it. I think I think that he's just who I always pictured, and I can't I that's unpicture a, him. I think that's a really good casting for chains. Mm-hmm. I I went with Jerome Flynn, Braun. Oh yes, not heavy set enough. I picture right. chains as being more heavy set. Yeah, but from a personality and being able to kind of pull it off standpoint. Yeah, I could see that. The only thing I'm not sure about with Jerome is can he pull off kind of the more the fatherly side of it. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen it with the character of Braun, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean we've only seen the guy in one right. thing. So, right. so interesting. All right, Bug. Daniel Huddlestone. He played Gavroche in the movie version of Les Mis. Okay, yeah, I definitely don't. Definitely don't know who that is. But that's okay. You're not going to know mine either. Right. Ellis Rubin. He is a child actor, about 12 years old. Just looks to me like what I pictured Bug as being. Mm-hmm. He was in a movie called Linda from HR, and he was also on Impractical Jokers. Oh, there you go. As the kid who ran towards Sal and yelled, Stick him Oh, I remember that episode. Loud. Yeah. I didn't know that he was that kid uh-huh. when I chose him. It was when I was, um, but when I was looking through his IMDb, mm-hmm. Show, but he just looks like what I picture Bug is looking yeah. like. So. What about Callow and Galdo? Okay. So I had a, a distinct picture of Callow and Galdo in my mind of what they looked like. and But not an actor. I just had a very kind of... M- me too. But me too. But I, I kind of went through some different actors. Um, <laughs> if you look at my search history... <laughs> <laughs> Same Z's. Okay. <laughs> Especially when we get to the next one. <laughs> Olive skin actors under 30. <laughs> like I, it's not a weird kink thing. I'm just... I did <laughs> I did quite a lot of that as well. Okay. For mine, there's a lot of it's gonna look like I'm really chubby chasing the male actors. <laughs> there's a lot of how many different ways can you say heavy set young male actors? <laughs> That's what my Google history looks like right now the things we sacrifice for the podcast um the actor i found was um his name is arjun rampal and he just is uh an indian bollywood actor mm, okay he just has the kind of like um, olive skin hooked nose handsome he just looks i don't know that just matched what i kind of pictured i mean i was trying to go the same direction i was looking for like arabic jewish mm-hmm. uh actors of that same age the person I stumbled upon, though, and it's not my favorite, but somebody who I think could pull it off, Jay Baruchel. He was in undeclared. He's been in a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. He was in undeclared. Was probably the thing he's known the most for. But he's been a kind of a character actor, bit actor in 
tons of movies. Mm-hmm. So if you saw them, you would absolutely recognize them. Okay. All right. So who do you have? And this to me was the hardest one to cast. Okay. And I'm, I'm still not 100% decided, but Jean Tannen. I can see why this would be a hard one. But I picture an actor who was on Lost. He was on Alias, and he was in the new Star Wars movie. You probably won't recognize his name, but when I show you this picture, you'll be like, oh, yeah. His name is Greg Grunberg. So he played like supporting roles, like I said, in Alias, in Lost, in That's Who He Is. Yes, yes. I've seen. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Right? Because he's kind of stocky, but John's not supposed to be like fat, fat. Correct. But he's like stocky, but he's muscular, but he doesn't look like all buff. It was a really, it's so difficult. And and I got to have a real respect for like casting directors. If you're casting anything other than like, particularly for men, if it's anything other than like strong jawed buff actors with a little bit of face stubble, like... You just don't have a lot of options. I came up with three, and I'm going to walk you through all three of them. Walk me through it. So my first one was Charlie Kuntz, who played Fat Neil on Community, and he's been in a bunch of other ones. He was just kind of a chubby, heavyset guy. In the face and the hair and all of that, I think that's kind of what Jean would look like. But I didn't feel like he was physically imposing enough. So then I went with Christian Narn, who played Hodor. But he's like seven feet tall. I mean, Jean is supposed to be quite tall. You know, they do mention him going out with the mask of Azagia because that's the only disguise that would work for someone of his height. Mm, yeah. And then the sisters also mention the really tall priest. You yeah, know? yeah, okay. Good point. But again, I think... Jean's got a little bit of leading man about him, too. You know, he's not described as being like overly. Stop looking at me like that. It's okay. He's not being described as being overly handsome, but he's got like, he needs to look dangerous as well. Or like, like you said, physically imposing. Imposing. So, you know who I settle on? Who? You're smiling. It's going to be funny. Cody Lundeen from Dual Survival. Shut up. The, the barefoot hippie from Dual Survival. You don't know. Why? I don't know. Oh, my God. No, with his bare feet. No, you're ruining everything. Stop it right now. Oh, now I'm looking at pictures of him and I can't even... Oh, there's a picture of him with his shirt off. That's what I imagine (sighs) Jean looks like. No, that's not what he looks like. I mean, in the body. You're wrong. Oh, yeah. I mean, the body type is right, but... Yeah. Not the face, necessarily, but the body type. Jean doesn't strengthen his mitochondria by going around barefoot in the (laughs) snow. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay. No, Greg Grunberg is obviously Jean Tan, and I think we can all agree. I yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's way better than anything I came up with. I I like that. A little too, a little on the old side, but 
but all gonna, my all mine are gonna, a little on the old side. They're going to age them up anyway. Yeah. Uh, if they ever cast this show, by the way, found out rights have been purchased twice. Mm-hmm. And nobody's ever done anything with it. Why? What's wrong with know. you, Hollywood? We need another Buffy reboot. Uh, well, I have to tell you, like as much as I'm glad they're going to do a King Killer Chronicles, mm-hmm. I don't hold out high hope that they're going to do it right. Yeah, and this would be a much better transition to television. Mm-hmm. All right, there's only one person left. Who do you have for Lock Lamora? You know who I have. I don't even need to tell you. Sam Rockwell? No. Ving Rhames? No. Tom Hanks? No. I'm just giving you the entire cast for the Green Mile. (laughs) No, I forgot. You told me, but I forgot. I haven't told you. I just assumed you would guess. No, I don't know. (laughs) But you got the color of my aura wrong, so (laughs) all bets are off at this point. Uh, Mover Dave from the Imagination News. <laughs> We're not going to talk about Mover Dave on the podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a okay? minute. Wait a minute. That's wait. deep, dark, weird crush stuff, okay? <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. Uncle Les Stroud. <laughs> no! It's David Tennant. No, Obviously. of course it's David of Tennant. Of course. He's perfect. Yeah. He's like, got the slight build, the brown hair. But like weird charisma. And that's how I picture Locke. Yeah, no way. Like somehow having like this weird, like something in his voice just makes people like want to do what he says. I have two. Okay. Garrett Headland. He was in Troy. He was also in Friday Night Lights. And my favorite one is... Paul Dano. Paul Dano was in 12 Years a Slave and Looper. I also kind of like Alfie Allen in the role. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking up. So Paul Dano was also in There Will Be Blood. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I could see that. I, I like Paul Dano. And who was the other one? Oh, Garrett Hedlund. I don't know. I think I feel like he's they're both really a little too handsomey for me. Well, Garrett Hedlund, I definitely think being is probably a little too handsomey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Dano, I think, is the right combination of of like having some character to his face without, you know, without looking like a leading man necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Locke needs to be someone who it would be easily overlookable. Like there's nothing that sticks out about him. Yeah. Which is, you know, there's nothing kind of unusual about him in his face, which is why David Tennant doesn't work. What? It's why David Tennant is perfect. No, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this. (laughs) I mean, okay. So we have given our fantasy casting. There you go. What? Thank you. listeners (laughs) it has been done it has been done okay we're still married somehow we got through it and somehow we managed to do this (laughs) all right so you can find us on our website at the duke and duchess podcast.com you can find us on twitter at the dnd podcast d as in david n as in nancy d as in david podcast 
You can find us on Facebook at The Duke and Duchess. And if you want to hang out and chat with us there, you can find us on our Duke and Duchess podcast group page. Give us a review on iTunes. We love those. And what we also love is word of mouth. So tell a friend, share about us on social media. That is probably the way we're going to grow and and be able to build more of an audience and more cool people for you to talk with and chat with on social media. So help us out. Good night. Good night, everyone. Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle. Soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Caster Quest on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at esopodcast.com.